0: Bible Books in 30 Minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tabner.
1: For this conversation, we're going to look at the second letter from Peter and also the letter from Jude. But just to pick up from from last time, as it were, Mike, the context in which um, these letters from Peter were written.
0: Yeah, well, this second letter from Peter is written sort of two or three years after his previous letter. And we said in a previous episode that it was in that period when the Roman Empire was starting to turn against the Christians. Originally, they'd just seen it as a sect of Judaism, which was one of their approved religions, a a religio licta. But as Judaism turned away and rejected Christianity, so Rome began to see as something they needed to keep their eye on. And by the 60s, when these letters are being written, just less than 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Roman state is turning against the Christian church. And that was very much the focus of 1 Peter. Now, as we come to 2 Peter, and actually, when we look at the letter of Jude as well, both of these deal not with the enemy outside, the pressure that was coming from Rome, but the enemy within. They're actually both dealing with the issue of false teachers within the church. But this one to Peter is really right at the end of Peter's life. Now, how do we know? Because in chapter one, He writes to them and says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. So clearly, Peter knows that the end of his life is coming. We know that Nero died in 68 AD, so it must have been just before that, obviously. So he knows that his life is coming to an end, as the Lord's make clear. Is he thinking that, as, as Jesus spoke to him and said, Peter, the end's coming. Is he thinking back way to John 21 when Jesus said there that a time would come when he would stretch out his hands and someone would lead him where he would not want to go. And John adds, by this he was indicating the kind of death that Peter would die. He would be crucified like his master. So it really is towards the end of, of Peter's life. Interestingly, by the way, he goes straight on to say, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things, these things about Jesus. Now, we know that Mark was a close friend and companion of Peter. He's actually mentioned by name at the end of one Peter. And it looks like what Peter is thinking of there is his account of the life of Jesus that would be written through his friend Mark and end up with what we now call Mark's gospel. So he really made sure that we could remember his account of Jesus' story.
1: So at this point in his life, time is precious, and his focus, somewhat remarkably, is on, what, heresies being preached inside the church?
0: Yes, because he is so concerned. Obviously, if he's not going to be around much longer, he needs to make sure that the church is on good foundations and is not going to be misled. The interesting thing is before he actually addresses the issue of the false teaching, he does what happens so many times in these letters. He starts with Jesus. He starts with what God has done for us in Jesus. So he talks about how God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's interesting, isn't it? There he is getting near to the end of his life, knowing what was coming. And he's still able to say that God's given him everything that he needs, that we've got these great and precious promises from God through Jesus. And therefore he encourages them to to live that out. And as he's encouraging them to do that, and also to get rid of, anything that would stop them being effective and productive, he says in chapter one, because he knows his end is near. He urges them to keep trusting in the message that they've received. It's interesting. um, He talks about receiving them from reliable sources, and he includes in that both himself In verses 16 to 18 of chapter one, he talks about we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on to talk in such a way that he's clearly thinking there about the transfiguration and that moment when there was no mistaking just after he had confessed that Christ was the Lord There was this transfiguration of Jesus that showed who he really was, and he has communicated that to them. So both from him and at the end of chapter one, the prophets who foretold Jesus. And so having set the scene, reminding them of Jesus and who they are in him and the promises they have in him and the need to hold on to him and the fact that he's always made sure that everything they know about Jesus has come through reliable sources from chapter two onwards, he goes on to deal with what is at the heart of this letter, a warning to beware of false teachers who, of course, if they followed them, could easily lead them from these very precious truths that he has shared with
1: them. So what is it that these false teachers are, are teaching? Why, why is this
0: such an issue? Well, it, it becomes an issue because they are they're trying to Take people away from the core gospel. In fact, if we just look at a few of the opening verses of chapter two, it will help us answer that question. He says, there were also false prophets among the people. He's thinking back to the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Wow, that's really powerful. Heresies fundamentally wrong teaching He's not thinking about, you know, disagreements we might have about how we should use Sundays. He's talking about fundamental heresies here that will be destructive. And the way these teachers operate, secretly introducing them. You know, no one has ever got up and and stood at a lectern or a pulpit and said, I would now like to introduce a new heresy. They creep in slowly, subtly, surreptitiously. And so he goes on to say a little bit about these destructive heresies. He says, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. So it seems to have been something to do with undermining what Jesus did at the cross, because it was at the cross that he bought us, he ransomed us. He says, many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And here's a key. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. So it seems like uh, these false teachers who were introducing false teachings were, were not just doing it, you know, sort of for the sake of it. There, there was some money to be made here. Funny, isn't it, that still today money can be a big driver of some supposed Christian organizations and churches. And yet, you know, they make their success and their money often by majoring on minors. And sometimes we end up so majoring on minors that then we blow those minors out of all proportion. And then those minors become the most important thing, the thing that that ministry or preacher is is known for. But there's money often behind it. This is big money. And these guys seem to have seen this as an opportunity to make money. Maybe, you know, we're going to tell you the real gospel now. Peter's not been telling you the whole truth. But the Lord has shown us some particular issues here that we need to highlight to you. But clearly, the character of these false prophets ought to have shouted loud with, hello, something's wrong here. Because as we go on in chapter two, by verse 13, he's just uh, spoken about how not only was their coming predicted, but their judgment is assured. And then he says, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done to God's people, understood. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight, their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. An accursed brood. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? They've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. Now, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who'd been hired to curse Israel and he was in ministry for money, in other words. He's using that as an illustration. So here are these false teachers not only out to get as much money as they can out of ministry. Ministry was a money-making machine. Let's put it that way. But it also seems there's a whole host of wrong living, you know, carousing in broad daylight, overeating, overdrinking, eyes full of adultery. And the trouble is, and we see this still today, don't we, David, very often, that when sometimes particular ministries become so big, and then those ministries become so full of their own importance, and they're convinced of their their own publicity, and then it's it's very easy for people like that to make excuses for why they have to behave in, in a certain way. Well, yeah, you know, I know I have a lady on the side, but, you know, the Lord understands the pressures I'm under and he He knows what I need. And here is the same thing happening. And I think what Peter is saying to us here, you know, how do you identify false teaching? Well, yes. Look at its content. Look at what it is. Is it in line with what Jesus taught? Is it in line with how the Old Testament prepared for that? But also look at the character of those who are teaching this. Does their character line up with that of Jesus? And if it doesn't, then alarm bells really should be ringing very loud and very clear. But bear in mind that Peter, who's not on his deathbed, but he
1: senses that, he hasn't got long, is still concerned for the people, for
0: the believers in this in these communities. Tremendous pastor's heart, isn't it? I think we've seen that before, you know, in some of the other letters. We've talked about it with Paul. This is, neither of these are ivory tower theologians. Neither of these are CEOs in some distant remote office. These are pastors who are passionate about their people. And here Peter is passionate about the people that he cares for, you know, to call them an accursed brood, you see something there of the passion that's in him. And it, this is not a case of, well, I'm not going to be around much longer. So, you know, up to them, isn't it? You know, if they choose to follow that way, uh, tough luck. No, he's hes very, very clear and he comes out of care. And this desire to expose the false teaching, it it's not what it can be sometimes these days, you know, sometimes we get sort of heresy hunters, you know, the the people who are looking to see every little thing that's in David's life to see, you know, have you dotted all the I's and T's correctly? Ah, got caught you out. Yep. You don't quite believe the right thing about this, but that's really to catch you out. And, and that's not what's in Peter's heart here. His heart is not to catch out these false teachers just for the sake of heresy hunting. His heart is to expose them because he sees the dangers of where these teachings will lead. Look where they've led the teachers themselves. You know, it's led them to greed, to immorality, and he is passionate that false teaching should not lead his flocks away from the truth in Jesus. So, so it comes out of a passion for his people, even though he knows that this tent of his is about to be rolled up and put away any minute, as he puts it.
1: Is the urgency also driven by the conviction then that Jesus would return?
0: Absolutely. And that becomes a key part of this letter in chapter three, where he focuses very much on the idea Of the return of Jesus. And the link is, he said in the previous chapter, you know, judgment is coming and is assured on these false teachers. And if people scoff at the idea of judgment, then they should remember that the Lord is surely coming soon when there will be judgment for everyone. And that leads him in chapter three to talk about what Jesus promised, that he is coming back to this world one day. Now, it's interesting that even where are we sort of just over 30 years since the resurrection, that people were already starting to say, yeah, you know, all this teaching about the return of Jesus, but he's not come yet, has he? Perhaps a bit like some people might do today, and they were doing this even After 30 years. And so he answers that question in particular. And there's this really great section in chapter three where he says to those who keep saying, Well, where's the Lord's coming? You know, people have kept saying he's coming, he's coming, but he's not here. And chapter three, verse eight, he says, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he's saying God operates on a different timescale. A day, a thousand years, it's all the same to him. But why has Jesus not come back yet? And the answer is still the same for us today because he's patient. He is wanting to give more time for more people to come to know Jesus, because when Jesus returns or when death comes to us, whichever is the sooner, that's it. There is no opportunity to change our mind about Jesus after our death or after his return. The only opportunity we have to decide for Jesus is this life here and now. So It's like God's holding back the return of Jesus because he still wants many, many more in his family. But be assured of this, Peter goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. He uses the same picture there that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians. So obviously this was a a pretty common picture uh, of a thief coming in the night. You know, he doesn't Announce when he's coming. He doesn't put a card through your letterbox and say, by the way, uh, I'll be coming to rob your house next Thursday. He comes suddenly, unexpectedly. He will come like a thief and the heavens will then disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be. Well, my version says laid bare, but really the Greek says they're and it's translated like this in the ESV translation, and everything in it will be exposed. When Jesus comes, everything on the earth will be exposed for what it is. The truth will be seen. There'll be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no excuses to be made because God knows everything. So Jesus is coming. It's delayed because he wants more and more people to repent. But please don't take that delay in coming for an understanding that he's not going to come. He is most definitely coming. And when he comes, everything and everyone will be exposed. This focus on false teaching
1: occurs, obviously, in a number of these letters in the New Testament. And the letter from Jude, you say, has a similar focus. Just tell us a bit about that letter.
0: Yeah, very much so. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between Peter and Jude uh, in terms of their content. So they're obviously addressing similar situations. Now, Jude was writing just a a few years early, probably around the same time as one Peter. Who was Jude He describes himself as, in verse 1, as a brother of James, who was James. We've seen he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and a brother of Jesus. So actually Jude is one of Jesus's earthly brothers, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. So probably written around about 63 to 65 AD to unnamed recipients. We don't know who this was to. Uh, But he wrote, he says, to defend the faith that God has entrusted once and for all to the saints. So Jude is seeing here as the Christian faith needs to be defended at this time uh, from what? Well, he's not thinking again of the outside. He's thinking of what's happening within there were false teachers. So it seems these false teachers were were pretty widespread. They'd worm their way into the church quite well and seemed to be making quite a good living out of this. And although Jude's a very, very short letter, there are two errors that he addresses in it. The, the first is to do with a misunderstanding of God's grace. Um, he talks about they're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So those seem to be the two key things. They were abusing grace. They were saying the grace of God, the kindness of God, means, hey, God's forgiveness, so it doesn't matter how we live. Why? Because God forgives us in Jesus. And so they were living, frankly, godless lives and using the grace of God to excuse that. I've still heard that today. Yeah, I know I still do this and I know it's wrong, but I know that God will forgive me. Man, if you ever find yourself saying that, you need to stop and think. Because what sort of life are you living? It's not a Jesus-focused life. That's one thing for sure. So they were abusing the grace of God. And secondly, they were denying Jesus Christ, our only sovereign. So they were undermining something about who Jesus was, that he, they were saying he wasn't truly God come into this world to, to save us uh, from our sins through his death on the cross. So two pretty fundamental abuses, uh, twists of Christian doctrine there. So this Jude, as you say, the brother of Jesus
1: himself, is writing to those who need a steer on these false teachers. What sort of practical forward-thinking advice and wisdom then does he bring to these people?
0: Well, he does two things. One is that he urges them to live very different lives to these false teachers. He describes them as shameless shepherds who only care for themselves, who promise much but deliver nothing. And he, he says, come on, go back to the teaching of the apostles in verses 17 and 18. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. I really like that expression, you know, build yourselves up. This is something that you can do together. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Live in the light of Christ's return. Keep yourself in God's love. Help rescue others from sin. So we've talked in a previous episode about how some of these letters are almost bullet points. And there's a whole number of bullet points here of very practical things that he calls the Christians to do positively in place of this negative stuff that the false teachers are bringing in.
1: So it's clearly not all negative. There's a lot of positive. And, and how does Jude end his letter?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's loads of positive. It, it starts negative. Beware of this. But he then focuses on all those positive things that I've just listed. How does he end? Oh, he ends with with an amazing prayer. Uh, it's often described as a doxology uh, is the word that's sometimes used in church, an ascription of praise to God. It's a doxology that's still often used in in many churches today to end meetings. And I think the best thing I can do is to read it because it's not just a sort of rounding off prayer. He really does believe this. He believes that this is what is going to make a difference. This is what is going to help these unknown Christians that he's writing to, to stand firm and to resist this false teaching that he's trying to get in. And here's his prayer. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That doesn't need an Amen. I don't know what does. So he's he's He recognizes that they're in a challenging situation. Remember the scenario we painted before when we looked at one Peter this growing pressure outside there in the world against Christians. Now they've got growing pressure inside from these false teachers and this false doctrine that's coming, that's trying to rob them of being rooted in Jesus. What better could he do than to remind them that, listen, at the end of the day, this is about God. My trust is in God, to God who's able to keep you from falling. I think it's always good to keep coming back. To that, you know, when the pressure is on, whether it's pressure from without or pressure from within, to remember it, it's God who's able to keep us from falling. And sure, there are things that we need to do, and and Jude will challenge them, just as Peter challenged folk in his letter, that there are things we need to give ourselves to. But at the end of the day, it's about God being able to keep us from falling under this pressure. It's about God who's able to present us in his glorious presence. It's God who's done this. It's God who sent his son, Jesus. It's God who led his son, Jesus, to the cross. And so there's this tremendous conviction at the end that we apostles and church leaders, Jude obviously wasn't an apostle, but obviously a significant figure in the church, Uh, We church leaders, you know, can do so much. But at the end of the day, this this is about God and we're commending you to God who can keep you and God who'll bring you before his glorious presence. And I think that's still a, a good thing for us to remember today when we are facing challenges of different kinds, whether it's challenges and pressure from outside there in the world or 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 whether it's stuff going on in the church at the end of the day and it's a bit of a struggle for us. At the end of the day, it's about God. He's the one who's able to keep us. He's the one who's done everything for us. And while we need to be co-laborers with him, as St. Paul puts it, this really is about God. He's well able to keep us. And that's the note that Jude ends his letter on.
1: And I get the impression from both Second Peter and Jude that the is, you know, be on your guard, particularly around these false teachers, but that you need to do something. Don't
0: just be aware of the false teaching, actually do something about it. Yes. And you know what? The best antidote to something negative is something positive. And I think sometimes, you know, Christians today can spend so much time hunting out the negative, looking for what's wrong particularly in people's lives or in teaching or, you know, they analyze the pastor's sermon. They've got all their notes of what was wrong with it that morning. And while both Peter and Jude call people to be alert to false teaching, really both of them are saying the, the answer to the negative is to build your own lives well on Christ. So Jude there, committing them to God who's able to keep you. Uh, Peter in his letters, very much focusing on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us at the cross and to letting these things be worked out in practical ways and to doing this together. We're not on this journey on our own. We're not fighting on our own. We are part of this glorious temple that God is building, the royal priesthood that Peter spoke about in his letter And it's as we focus on those good things and give ourselves to that, that you know what? Very often then the negative things have a way of falling into place. We see them for what they are. uh, And frankly, we don't need to give them much attention. We've exposed them. We see them. And I just got better things in my life to be getting on with than fussing about all of that. Because I, along with you as my brothers and sisters, I'm going to keep pursuing Jesus and the life that he wants me to discover in him. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.